0: Welcome to the Conversions Podcast, where we discuss conversion rate optimization and the latest tips, technologies, and actionable strategies that you can actually use to get more of your website's visitors to take action. And now, your host, Francis Teo. Hey everyone, Francis Teo here. Welcome to a very special episode of the Conversions Podcast. After we've had so many awesome guests on this show, I thought it would be a great idea to have a guest host interview me so that I can share the strategies we use every day at Conversions Guaranteed, my conversion rate optimization agency specializing in helping e-commerce sites increase conversion rates and in turn their sales and revenue, all without having to drive more traffic to the site. We've used these very same strategies to help online stores increase their revenue anywhere from 25% to over 370% very excited to be able to share these strategies with you. Our guest host for this episode is Terry Lin, host of the Build My Online Store podcast, one of the most popular podcasts today in the business category, and a very smart entrepreneur. If you're interested in e-commerce at all, you have to be subscribed to Build My Online Store. Now let's get started with today's episode. All right, so how did you get into conversion optimization in the first place? Well, about year and year and a half ago, I was still doing a lot of SEO stuff and especially for clients, and I got hit by several of the updates. So I made the decision that back then that I didn't want my fate to be controlled too much by Google. And so I was looking around for something interesting to do and um, I started exploring to doing conversions and I, I thought like this is interesting it's not entirely dependent on Google it seems to be kind of fun so I went to one of my ex-SEO clients at this point he stopped being an SEO client because I couldn't get a traffic for him or rather I could but it was getting really expensive and difficult and I decided to just ask him like you know I do this conversions thing and something new I'm trying. Do you want to try it out? So I charged him a low flat fee for increasing the click-through rate on his e-commerce shop on one of the sales pages. And I managed to increase that about 20-30%. Just uh, click-through rates to the add to cart button. So then he came back to me after a while, after we achieved this 20-30% increase in clicks to the add to cart button. He came back and said like, you know what? This looks interesting, but we don't want to measure add to cart button clicks anymore. We want to measure revenue because that brings in the money. So then I started doing a more of a monthly thing for him and I expanded to more clients. Uh-huh. And so was the 20 to 30% click through
1: on all the pages like overall for the whole business or is it like a specific product or?
0: This is like like a one product page with a couple of options. Gotcha. And
1: so uh, what happened to his conversion rate? Did it actually go up because of that or was it just like, what happened
0: next? What happened next? Uh, you mean in, in the following test or this? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so he hired you. At, so you increased his click-throughs
1: by 20-30% uh, and then he hired you to uh, do some more stuff for them?
0: Or So here we go. It's, it was a 26.2% increase in click-through rate on the add to cart button. So this case study is on my site and that was actually my first uh, real CRO project for a client.
1: Gotcha. And so your client said you wanted to then increase sales. What did you guys do after?
0: Um, I increased sales. We did another test um, by doing a, a more radical redesign of the entire site. This was a long-time client, so we, we have about three to four years of working experience together. So when I say that I can do it, I can
1: do it. <laughs> because I think a lot of store would be scared that if something is working, they don't want to try and break it. So like, how would you convince them that, hey, you know, it, maybe if you're converting at 2%, you could be getting four or five.
0: Okay, I have to qualify that. I mean, um, blatant overconfidence is one thing, but I always try to tell the client that, well, based on what i see that there's the opportunities to increase conversion rates here however this might not come until after about a year or maybe even longer depending on how much traffic you have because um although at the end of the day we do get increased results uh following our process in between there can be many many tests that might not achieve such results and you have to pre- Be prepared to take a hit. For this particular client, this was one of his many sites. So um, this would be not a huge part of his business. And it would be a good site to test out something I would say more radical, like a a complete redesign of the website. But for, let's say, a store owner who has only one website, we could just use that same model and test like one landing page or a portion of the site or a portion of the visitors to decrease the risk. I see. So you don't
1: just say, hey, you need a new website and then boom, everything changes in like the next month. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And so you mentioned about your process for kind of onboarding clients. So how does that work? Uh, in general?
0: It's a long, quite comprehensive kind of process when we start onboarding a client. So before we even go into onboarding the client, before the client becomes a client, we make sure that this is a good fit for our conversion optimization work. For example, the website needs to have sufficient traffic in order to do split testing, as well as they need to be making enough revenue. For them to justify the cost of doing conversion optimization, because this is quite an expensive thing to do. If you just think of uh, the stuff that needs to happen for at least uh, e-commerce site, which is a bit more complex, we need to have copywriting. We need to change the copy, change the design, do some usability stuff, the actual testing, the anal- analysis of the data and many other things. So it can get quite involved in the process. So if they are just at a starting stage of the business uh, with maybe a few, not that many visitors to the website, this might not be the best thing to work on. So I always tell the potential clients would be like, maybe your problem is not conversions. Maybe you simply don't have enough traffic. Maybe you should work on your traffic. And when you have enough traffic, you can come back to me.
1: Yeah. And how much would you say is like a good traffic point to start off with? Like 3,000 visitors a month, 5,000 or like what's the number? That's kind of a ballpark range.
0: I don't know. Is that a good answer?
1: Well, I guess cuz every 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 business is different too, right? So it's hard to say like there's a specific number, but I guess would like a thousand plus a month?
0: Okay. The the real answer is I don't really know because I've seen sites that with tens and tens of thousands or visitors having when we run a test is there's great difficulty in getting a statistically significant result just because that perhaps the site is in a very competitive space and it's very hard to move the needle so the main factor that affects how long a test takes to not the main factor one of the main factors that affects how long a test takes to reach the statistical significance would be how different in terms of the conversion rate your new treatment is compared to the control so if i have a website it's it converts at one percent that's the baseline rate and suddenly you can make it through our treatment we can make it convert at five percent that's a significant increase and it would not need so much traffic in order to validate this result however if it's just a small like maybe one or two percent change it might take a lot of traffic in order to validate this result.
1: I see. So I could have a site with 10,000 visitors, but if not hitting the place where I'm doing the test, it doesn't really matter because I'm not getting significant results. So it'll take longer to prove, basically. So
0: Yeah. So, well, but I don't know. It's really a bad answer. I would say ballpark. I prefer to work with clients have having at least five to 8,000 uniques a month. However, you know, if it's a smaller number, slightly smaller, I can work with that as well. I do know that most conversion optimization people, they consider this number to be very small. They would rather work with maybe at least 20,000, 30,000 a month.
1: Just because you have more room to play with and kind of you can figure things out relatively faster, I guess, than with like the 3,000, 8,000 visitor site.
0: One reason is, yes, you can get results back faster generally if you have more visitors. The other thing is, if the test runs longer, it's exposed to a lot of validity threats. So, for example, there might be some external factors that affect the test. And the longer you run a test, the longer your test is exposed to these uh, irregularities in the environment. Uh, So once you onboard a client, uh, what's the process afterwards? Okay, step one would be to ask the client, what exactly is a conversion goal? What are we trying to achieve here? Do we want more revenue? Do we want more sales? Do we want both? Is this a lead generation site, which we don't do very often, but we can do as well. We can do lead generation as well. So it's like, is your lead, uh, is a conversion goal uh, getting a lead? getting a sale and it can get even more complex because we can be optimizing for the lifetime value of the customer for example if they they're using something like a loss leader strategy they might lose money in the first sale to get a long lifetime value or if if it's a SaaS app then maybe it could be like number of people who A micro conversion would be uh, number of people who sign up for the free trial, but they actually make money on the long term value of the customer would be that would be something like number of people who go from free trial to upgrade to the premium plan. So before we even start any optimization work, we have to ask the client what exactly they want to achieve here.
1: All right. So if we take e-commerce conversions as an example, uh, Sam converting at, uh, 1%, you know, and I want to get to four, you know, where where do I even start to get to that?
0: That's a very good point. And it's actually very common for someone to come to me and say that they want to get the site from 1% to 4%. So that's like what a 400% return. This is kind of dangerous. I always tell the client, well, uh, let's, discuss this because that's the wrong expectation because there are a lot of case studies even on my own website uh, the conversions guaranteed site we have like huge 300 odd percent returns in in terms of increase uh, of the conversion rate but when we when a client comes in we try to tell them that this is not a good target hit it's not realistic to have increase an increase in your conversion rate like 200 percent or even 50 percent from one test even though we have done it it would make sense to plan in such a way where we, we're we looking for incremental ch- increases so we should target for maybe about anywhere between 10 to 20 percent 10 15 is actually a very good ballpark number and we say like this test or this series of tests, let's set a benchmark or, or a target of uh, 15% to increase conversion rates or revenue per visitor. So you're saying we'll tweak it maybe 10, 15, 20%
1: of the time. But then after like 10 or 20 tests, then you'll get to like the 300, 400% ratio. Like like it's never just one time boom and then 4% conversions or 8% conversions. It's always like ten little tweak here, a little tweak there. And then over time, it adds up.
0: Right. Yes, that's right. That's the better way to go. Although we have basically double conversions on one test, but this is not good thing to do. Realistically, you cannot get so much uh, returns from a certain test.
1: And so when you're looking for the first 10-15% increase, like where do you even start with that? Or how do you approach the data the client gives you, either through analytics, webmaster tools, or traffic? or
0: like how do you determine which point to start out at? We have a very comprehensive pro- process that is getting more comprehensive the more work we take on. So the first thing we take a look is at is the analytics data. We want to take a look at the traffic sources. Where are they coming from? You can get organic keyword data, although with the Google updates, you can no longer get keywords from Google. But the general idea is we want to split between brand traffic and non-brand traffic. So specifically for e-commerce shop, when we have brand traffic, these people, they have some idea about what the brand is about. Certain kind of tactics and strategy in terms of copy might not work so well on brand visitors. And if they're non-branded, Visitors, for example, if they are, if you are selling blue widgets, so they might be. You might want to tell them more about the features and the benefits of your particular product in terms of for non-brand traffic. So we want to always split between a brand tra- brand name traffic and non-brand name traffic. So the idea is that if I sell blue widgets,
1: if someone is searching for blue widgets versus Terry's blue widgets, there's a different intent
0: based on these keywords, right? That's right. So. It's more about the psychology of the visitor. When they you visit your site, let's say it's Terry's Blue Widgets, they have some idea what your your brand is about. They might know that you are the cheapest or you have highest quality. And telling them that again, yes, it will work, but they probably already have some idea of what you are about. And do those keywords generally convert better if they're branded from what you've seen? It depends. From what I've seen, actually... The thing about brand name traffic is a lot of the brand name kind of websites where I've seen potential clients and clients where they have almost 100% brand traffic. And it's always the same problem. They are they want to expand beyond brand traffic.
1: I see. Like they want to get to the competitors, the general keywords like
0: blue widgets and I see. And so once you separate these two traffic sources, uh, what happens next? See, this is just one part of the entire puzzle. The other interesting stuff in analytics would be my favorite new part of the Google Analytics report is what they call multi-channel funnels. This has been This has been great for conversion optimization. Because previously, when you go to analytics, any analytics software, we can we we'll talk about first touch and last touch. So this relates to the channel, the last channel or the first channel, the visitor touched or visited for lack of a better word. But the touch is the official
1: term, I guess. So what does this mean? This means if I'm on a website, the last one they were at before they left to somewhere else? or
0: One really interesting report in analytics would be what... Google Analytics terms as the multi-channel funnels. So traditionally, when you use Google Analytics, they use last Dutch attribution. This means that all your conversions are attributed to your last channel. For example, if the visitor visited your site directly and then they visited your site through AdWords, then they made a conversion. That means they bought something. And this goes back to Google Analytics. So Google Analytics will tie the conversion to the last channel the visitor visited before they made that conversion in this case ppc so adwords i believe does first touch attribution so if a visitor clicks on an ad and then goes to your site directly that all that will be attributed to your google adwords spend in your google adwords account but this is not an accurate model of how people convert or purchase online you don't just go to the website you, sh- you may, but chances are you will visit the website two or three times. Uh, you might come through social media, you might go through PPC, you might go through direct, all these channels before you make a purchase. So, the model of you just visiting the website and making a, making a purchase, then attributing your 100% of your conversions to this channel is not accurate.
1: So the danger is if you go down this path because you're going with the
0: wrong assumptions that
1: uh, your hypothesis and your testing might be off because you're using the different, I guess your fundamental first touch, last touch is different, right?
0: Yeah, people just don't buy like that. People visit the website several times before they buy.
1: Yeah, like they look for reviews on Google. They Google Google. Like if this business is legitimate, is this a real person? You know, and then they'll come back and
0: eventually buy, right? So Yeah, something like that. So in order to find out what channels a visitor visited before they made a purchase on your e commerce site, uh, there's this thing called multi-channel funnels. Previously this was only available in tools like MixPanel and Kissmetrics where you can basically tag all your incoming traffic from all these analytics software and figure out like this visitor what did he visit what did he do before he made a conversion so this new thing it's basically generally known as multi-touch analytics so a couple of the reports you can always pull it up in google analytics it's one of my favorite reports right now for conversion optimization, we have the assisted conversions. Like let's say a visitor made make a purchase. How much usually? So I'm just going to pull out the report now so I don't just misquote Google Analytics. This, for example, social media is a great example for this kind of report. So a typical conversion path for a very social media site. So social heavy site would be someone reads a review on Facebook goes to your website through your Facebook post and maybe a week later he visits your website and decides to buy. So this is basically an assisted conversion. So social media has assisted your uh, your branding, your visibility in order to get the final conversion. So in the typical last touch attribution model, nothing will be Attributed to social media, who who buys directly from Facebook? It's highly unlikely in most of the cases I found, but it does help increase your visibility. Uh, keeps your brand at the top of the mind of the customer, and so it does help. So, by taking a look at this report, we can see like social media how how much it has helped in terms of dollar value your overall marketing
1: campaign. I think mean, like if we take our friends Jimmy and Doug from Menal, like like with their Kickstarter, I think a lot of people shared. On Facebook, right? But then you go to the Kickstarter page, uh, you go to their website, maybe you Google them, and then you go back and then you buy it, right? But the first touch is still social, although the last touch
0: might be somewhere else in the middle, right? So. So yeah, exactly like that. So this is big actually. When I saw this report was available, it hasn't been available in Google Analytics for very long. The my favorite report actually in this section would be the top conversion paths. So I'm just pulling out a site right now and i can see like for example you can see that someone searched for your site through organic search twice before making a purchase oh that's useful because then it can tell you the data you people are looking for almost that you can put on
1: your site you can just keep them on your site right instead of having them bounce around to different places even though they probably will but if you can lessen that that's probably a better thing too
0: yep So it basically allows you to peek into the whole conversion process of the person. For example, let's say you have two two channels or it would just say like social times two, then direct. So someone visited your website through social media twice and then they remembered your website's name enough for them to type it directly into the into the browser window. So this basically gives you a peek into the psychology of how do people make their purchase. And analytics can tag people by cookies through this or how does that work? Like how do they know
1: how do they know they visit you social twice and then came back to your website direct?
0: This is all track using cookies, yes. Of course yeah. So I mean, when I say social, it would be from a social media site coming to your website because we don't have capabilities to track traffic that's not coming into your website directly.
1: Yeah, unless you like bit lead it or use some trackable link, I guess. But that's,
0: you can't do it for like 10,000 products or anything. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of analytics, these are the interesting reports that I use frequently and it's things are changing in the world of analytics so previously we have like visitor-centric we, we talk about metrics like hits keywords and stuff like that but it's slowly evolving google just launched into public use i would say previously it was in closed beta this thing called universal analytics which follows kiss metrics and a mixed panel model of having a very user-centric kind of approach to analytics so as Let's say yourself, you might have a smartphone, you might have a tablet, you might have a PC or Mac or whatever you use. And there should be a way to tie all these visitors together. So that's very challenging, but that's slowly developing.
1: Like it's gone from just presenting you with the data on how many visitors you have versus actual behavior they're taking before they go to your site, even during or after
0: Uh, they buy too. Gotcha. Exactly. And tie that all through your all different channels or rather different devices. And that's really challenging, but I mean, it's it's essential for marketers to have total view of how the conversion process is like. Because let's say currently with standard analytics, you have someone makes a conversion here, but he might be viewing it on his smartphone previously and stuff like that. So we want to basically tie the visitor session together.
1: Because otherwise, if you don't know the behavioral cycle, like how they're buying, like what are you optimizing? Because you just have a set of data that doesn't really. Tell you much, right? Rather than here's how they started out, here's where they went, here's what they did after, and here's how they end up buying. And then you can go back and backtrack and say, oh, here's this change this, let's change that, and then see how it goes, stuff like that.
0: Exactly. Related to that is an issue where you have data inaccuracies. Because currently, if I visit a website using a smartphone and I visit a website using my Mac and I made a purchase on my Mac. This will show up on the website analytics as two different users. That's right. Cause you're not cookies, you're cookies on the phone, or your cookies on your
1: laptop are different?
0: Right. So with software like Mixpanel and Kissmetrics, there's a way that's assuming that we have email of the visitor or somebody unique ID, for example, if smartphone apps usually have some unique ID tag to them. And if, if you have a login mechanism, you can basically tie all the sessions together using stuff like Mixpanel and Kissmetrics, and I believe in future Universal Analytics, which is a very interesting product, but it just came out of beta not too long ago. And I think most of us are still figuring out exactly the power of what it can do but one really 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 interesting feature would be um, the ability to upload offline data into google universal analytics huh. so this is
1: why all these SaaS apps or apps on the phone you down they always want you to give you their email and name so that so they can tie it together when you go to the desktop and see actually how you're using it too right
0: yep exactly so very powerful stuff we are going into a new age of tracking.
1: Yeah, like it's interesting too because some other e-commerce stores are talking about like how do you get local into this too, right? Like if I have an offline retail store, how do I know that if this guy's on the Android phone, he's 100 meters from my store, how do I ping him to like, hey, you know, here's a 10% off code, you know, come into my store. And kind of the new world we're going into is a little kind of scary too. It's a little
0: creepy. Yeah, that's more of like location-based advertising, which in most parts of the world, have not taken off, interestingly.
1: But you think about it, when you tie that into conversions too, you could also do that, and there's some angle that ties into there too, right? It's just, like, how do you bridge these things eventually is kind of the big question now.
0: Really exciting times, so... Yeah, (laughs) I'm not sure how data privacy laws will play into it, but it's definitely very interesting. Yeah,
1: I mean, certainly none of us have the answer on this podcast, but it should be interesting to keep a watch out of. So let's get back on to track a little bit. So we're talking about uh, earlier you want to split your branded traffic with non-branded and then now kind of your different behavioral channels on the multi-channel analytics and you know what's after that?
0: So I'm going to just list down the rest of the stuff we do like I think I've spent the last 10 minutes talking about analytics but It's quite comprehensive. So the other thing we do is do surveys. Our favorite tool currently is POP survey because it's mobile friendly. It allows you to take the surveys on the smartphone. So we survey the existing customers and we try to make sure that the survey is not biased. So there's no responder bias or we cannot totally eliminate responder bias uh, when writing a survey, but it really helps us give us insight into why exactly the best customers or previous customers are buying. So we found this really useful, basically survey the existing customers. Yeah, because
1: it's biased because they already purchased, but you can find out why they purchased and then use that to go
0: into your crl the reason that's why there's a bias in the survey we can use something like the h o h o copywriting kind of code to explain this people buy on emotion and justify logic there's a great book called thinking fast and slow where they highlight some of the recent developments in this kind of psychological thinking i don't profess to be a psychological expert or any expert in in terms of neuroscience or anything like that but basically they split up the brain into system one and system two so system two is something like conscious reasoning people people use logic for example if you're buying something it could be the features of the what does this do what are the dimensions something that's very logical but um, system 1 is something very unconscious. It's all intuitive. For example, let's pull out an example of an of the hat, basically. Let's say you're going to buy a luxury sports sedan. So your unconscious mind would say like, Hey, this look, thing look cool, you know. It's in like hot red. You know, I can... Yeah, yeah. So I sit in the car and I can like drive really fast i feel good about myself that's the unconscious system one thinking and that's the real reason why you want to buy the car right your system two will be like oh it's good value you know it's it's good fuel economy although that's really unlikely but very logical kind of thing and it can go to like um can i afford this maybe uh, you can justify to yourself why you in a very logical way why you want to buy this vehicle It's like, I work really hard, so
1: I deserve to drive a nice Maserati.
0: Something like that. Something like that. So basically, it's the difference between unconscious and conscious reasoning. So bringing back all this back to the survey, people, when they're making a purchase, very often they're making it on very unconscious thought. It could be like, I want this because, you know, it makes me happy or whatever, if you... If let's say you are uh, you want to you're on a diet and you want to binge eat on some sugary drinks or or something that this is very unconscious it, it's it's like an urge but when they are taking the survey they'll think back and give you the reason which is very very conscious very logical they'll be thinking like you know I bought this because of this and this and this reason so. It, yeah, it's pretty important to know that this is happening. It, the surveys are still useful. People generally do not lie on surveys, but they might not know what they're filling in. Mm, so how do you determine what's good survey results versus bad ones then? Like when you're trying to be careful for this bias. There's no way to avoid bias. So just take the results and bear in mind that there is a bias there. So this is, like I said, this is all just pieces of the puzzle so we have the analytics data we have the survey data and i'm just gonna move on well before we go into that what are some good questions to ask customers that have already bought from you okay my favorite question the one that i really want to know is why are they purchasing what's the primary reason why a visitor or why why do you purchase from the store what's the main reason why you purchase for the store and i like to follow up that with another question something like "Why? what were you most dissatisfied with in your purchase? This could I, we could identify room for improvement in certain areas.
1: But on the counter side you could also ask this to people maybe who abandoned cart or something like that to fill in that gap too, right? Because you said why did you buy why didn't you buy and then you put two of those together and you can just kind of mash up something to
0: improve also. Yep, totally. Except that we are focused on trying to essentially find out why the people who bought, bought, and then try to get more of the people who didn't really want to buy, or rather sitting on the fence and try to extract the reason from the people who have already bought and try to influence those people who are sitting on the fence. Yeah,
1: because there's certainly more value getting data from someone who's already bought versus someone who hasn't yet, right? And the more you can get, understand why they're doing it, you can work it into your marketing, your copy, your design, and all that good stuff too.
0: All right, so uh, what's next then? Yeah, so we we do a bit of usability testing using usertesting.com, our current favorite tool for doing usability testing. So basically...
1: So what what does visibility testing mean
0: before we get into it? Usability testing is basically in the good old days we would hire these volunteers pay volunteers to come into a to a little lab and we would get them to go through a, a series of tasks and we would observe them so that's the good old old style usability testing but we this has evolved into something called remote usability testing where we make use of the technology basically so this same thing we give them a series of tasks but now This session is recorded um, very often with a mic, so the visitor is speaking into the mic while they are making a purchase or whatever task you've given them, and we can basically observe what they are doing, whether they are experiencing any pain, things that they mention might be important as well.
1: Like if they can't find the add to cart button, they're like looking around the page, their mouse is going all over the place and things like that kind of, right? Stuff
0: like that, Yes. I see. so so where do you find these subjects then? Are they just random people on Craigslist or...? The cheap way to do it is just to ask your friends. I like to use usertesting.com. It's one of the more established players. So that really helps. There are several other uh, websites that allow you to do that. So basically you go to the website... You pay up, you tell them what tasks you need the testers to do, and you click a button. And usually within 24 hours, you can get your test results back. These
1: are people getting paid to just go online and look at websites, basically. Wow, pretty. sounds like a pretty sweet
0: gig. It's kind of an interesting thing. I would, sometimes I prefer to hire not-so-experienced people to do the usability testing because... The more experienced testers would give suggestions, the more experience <laughs> People will actually give suggestions on how to improve the website. And this might not be what you want. You basically want a very inexperienced visitor to experience your website and tell them what they see. They'll tell us what they see. Someone
1: kind of like your parents, right? Who maybe are online a little bit, but they're not sure on all this online stuff. And I think if you use them as a base for a general population, it's probably a good start too.
0: So that's usability testing. We use a couple of other tools. um, Icon's. Which uh, we've had on the podcast before, iquant is a tool that allows you to find find out what visitors are paying attention to in the first three ish seconds of visiting a website.
1: And how do they do how does that work? Is it like
0: at the mouse clicks or like heat maps or? This is basically a software that that uses an AI model that is based on real eye-tracking studies. They basically, I don't know how many, but I believe it's a couple of hundred hundred eye-tracking studies, and they took all the information and made it into a computer model that analyzes websites to see in about, the results come back in about, I don't know, 15 seconds, maybe even quicker on what a visitor is likely to see in the first three-ish seconds of visiting a website. So there's no installation of any software. It just analyzes the website and gives you a result.
1: Oh, I see. So it's modeled after studies of people's eye behavior. What is this website again?
0: Iquant. E-Y-E-Q-U-A-N-T I think I have to run some
1: sites through this to <laughs> because I think it's one thing when you're designing your own site like you want to look this way but then like hundreds of thousands of people that'll come here you don't know how they're going to react to. and Kind of when you're building your own site, you get stuck in that model where like you're inside a Coke bottle, you're trying to look outside in, but you just can't because you're so close to it.
0: Yep, exactly. So this is one of us- the users of such technology to have an objective view of your website. Okay, and so what happens after that? So that's icons. Uh, it's pretty useful. We want to see see whether there are any problems on the website there's some element that's really important for example the headline or sometimes the call to action button it's not visible so we might take that as a issue and just note it down so that's the basic tools we use there are stuff like uh, session cam and crazy egg which we don't use for each project depending on requirements we might bring it out and just use it so session cam is quite quite cool technology. We just started using it over the last month or so. It basically records your session, your mouse movements and your mouse clicks and everything. So it records your user session as it is. If we suspect there's a usability problem, for example, people cannot find such uh, so-and-so buttons so or cannot find the add to cart or checkout button or there's some confusion there. Confusion there, we can use technology like session cam to help us figure out what's going on by actually watching the visitor session.
1: I see. It's like the in-page, like a spying thing when someone's on your site and you can see
0: where they're clicking and then... Yeah, it is a spying thing. But it's... We're doing this for good reasons we are doing this to help us serve the customer a bit better and not just like spying on them. In fact, I'm quite mindful of this. Um, Of course, the site always has a site policy, a privacy policy to advise the visitors. The other thing is, when i'm recording sensitive sessions where like the visitor is typing in the credit card number or something i there's an option inside session cam where i can just like blanket blanket out so anyone looking at a session would just see like not see the actual credit card number and stuff like crazy egg is similar to session cam but it, it it's not really similar in the sense that that's more of like click maps where the visitor clicks so that's more of like a general overview. I see.
1: So it sounds like you're being like Sherlock Holmes, you're being detective into A, uh, the data that's coming in, you know, is it branded, non-branded, and kind of the different touch points, and then also usability standpoint too. So so once you have all this data, you know, how, how,
0: where do you go next? Okay, next, before, yeah, I've been talking for some time, haven't even gone to the testing. <laughs> But yeah, but this is the important part, right? People always say that, uh, you know, op- conversion optimization, we just click buttons and this tools we use optimizely, but as visual website optimizer and all these other cool tools, we change button colors and whatnot, and we run a test and that's done. Either we have a winner, we or a loser. And then we go on from there. But What you should be doing is basically doing all this groundwork. And that's what we do. This is the core part of our process that we're trying to improve all the time because the more information we can get before we start the test, the better our test will be. And we're just using the test as a means to verify our hypothesis rather than test random stuff, which I'm not a fan of. So once we have all this data, we talk to the business owner. If it's a bigger company, you can talk to marketing and sales The people who are customer-facing might be customer support, stuff like that, to we bring to them this information and they'll be like, you know, what do you think? Is this true? We have have some sort of discussion. So very often the customer-facing roles, they will have some insights into what the customer is thinking. For example, they might have some complaints or feature requests or if you're an e-commerce store selling blue widgets, maybe they want you to sell red widgets. I don't know. This is like when you talk to the customer service guys
1: who are talking to people on the phone. They'll get this feedback, and then you can basically cross-reference it to see if there's anything that stands out, right?
0: Yeah. So that's probably most of what we do before we start the test. And so once they decide, okay,
1: maybe someone does want me to sell red widgets. say, how do we test that as a hypothesis
0: and and do some testing on that? In terms of have selling some other product, we usually don't do that in the first test. It's just an example of a product. So it could be uh, because generally people are successful in business because they have a product that people want to buy. That's the way. That's why they're successful. You don't want to go from one product to another. That could be something for later on, but it could be like different facets of the value proposition. So in the first test, we usually take a look at what a couple of things to optimize we optimize the value proposition and the expression of the value proposition, the friction and anxiety elements of a web page. So we took all the data from all the groundwork we did and come out with a new version of the website or web page. And we take that customer theory and basically come out with a so-called better version of the website. And we can see how it does compared to before and after and all that. I see. Gotcha. All right.
1: And so uh, once you say you did this first test now, how do you decide to move on to a next test? Like once you have, you know, statistically significant data, do you just go back to ground zero and look at all your data again and then get a new hypothesis? Or what's the process you generally
0: take? Luckily, getting a statistically significant result is really complex. or uh, It's not super complex, but it might. There are a lot of issues when we talk about uh, getting a statistically significant test so what many people do um i think i mentioned this with justin on previous episode um most people just take the result from optimizely or visual website optimizer and take that to be the gospel truth of what how your website how, how the treatment is performing compared to the control so there are some validity threats that are possible to affect the results which i will not go too much into but more importantly there is basically the data might not be accurate so then you might make wrong decisions based on this data essentially yes i always export the data from optimizely the raw data and manually verify it really so you're saying you verify it with like analytics or like previous data or uh Previous data is one thing. For example, if the conversion rate is 1%, and when we run a test, you can see the control is converting at one2 or 1.3%. This is a indicator that maybe your test wasn't so good in terms of uh, there was some inaccuracy because there, there's no reason why a control should go from one historically at one, 1.0% to 1.3%. Because it's not consistent basically with what's historical ICO change. Yeah, mean. but beyond that, we have data inaccuracies. For example, and Optimizely, they don't deduplicate revenue goals for, I think, very practical reasons. A person might buy more than one time. So it doesn't make sense to deduplicate the revenue goals. But if the person review, refreshes the web page, it's very possible that the cookie will. The cookie or rather, the JavaScript will fire one more time and you have double the revenue for that one visitor. Oh, so it's actually over-reporting because this is enabled. Yep. Yeah. The other thing is like there are all kinds of weird seasonal variations and uh, external threats to the data that might affect. Yeah, like Christmas time, holidays in the US, you would have certainly more purchases because... Yep, yeah, exactly. So it could be um it could be people buy on weekdays people buy weekends people buy at the end of the month start of the month it could be uh, for example i got some clients in the supplement space dr Oz goes on national tv and declares your product by brand name that this is the best thing since sliced bread you get a flood of visitors to your website or could just be any other pr stuff we have a lot of targeted Or untargeted traffic coming to your website, let's go with targeted. So we have very motivated visitors going to your website and making a purchase. You're running an A, B test currently. It doesn't matter. I mean, people are so motivated that they're just going to buy anyway. So we might have a result that says there's no conclusion to your test. There's no statistically significant result. But it could be on a normal day, A is better or B is better. I see. Like there's never a right answer thing the tweak too because yeah I see what you mean so it's not that simple um, but I mean we work with statistics we manually verify the data we take a look at whether there's any weird stuff happening in the data and then we go to our clients and say something like sometimes we just need to run the data uh, the test for much longer to for the results to normalize and that's what I usually do um, but I want to be sure when I go to the client, well, this is a winning test. If you put it live, you can be at least 95% confident that this is going to be a winning variation. Mm -hmm. And do most clients take up your advice for doing that? Yeah, because it sort of makes sense. And when I explain to them, like, (laughs) in a very comprehensive way that, you know, this is, I'm doing this for your own good, like. I could tell you right now, like all the other uh, people who just use the tool in a very basic level, they're like, when the graph says green, that means put it live. But I'll be like, that might not be true. You know, I, I'm going to take a look at this uh, manually. And I want to be confident when I tell you that this is this is good to go. It's good to go. Yeah. Like it's green,
1: not just because your glasses are painted green, but that the grass actually is colored green, right? So,
0: Yeah. Because there is a risk if you put a, a so-called winning variation that's not really winning, the business owner will lose money. So um, we want to be yeah.
1: Because I guess if you take what's working during Christmas and you apply it say in like March when no one's really buying, like it kind of kind of throws the things off.
0: Yeah, that's a seasonal variation which is always very tricky. I guess for a solo store owner. Is this something they can do themselves or should they
1: always have an expert like you helping them out with conversions? I guess they could do it themselves, but it's really difficult. Because I know there's a, a segment of people who always like, don't want to give up control of this or they just want to learn about it themselves. Like, you know, is, is there advice you would give them like if they want to do it themselves versus hiring you? Or what are the advantages of or I think mistakes you can make doing it yourself?
0: Yeah, um, they could do it themselves, and there's nothing stopping them from doing it themselves. Although the reason why I do what I do, and it's you know people are still taking it up, I guess. And a lot of, I'm considered a, I run a fairly small CRO CRO operation, and but with the big boys in the market, they take up big brands for conversion optimization? Why would a big brand um, outsource the entire CRO operation to an external company? So the reason I think would be it's just so troublesome and complex to do. For example, we've been going on nearly an hour and this is just like me telling you the process. If we actually do it, it's going to take much longer. So it's actually, a lot of people do it like when they do CRO, they just test Stuff, for example, the button color or maybe a headline. But there's all this other stuff that we do to basically run a proper test.
1: Well, I guess in the end, it's they should focus on sales and marketing, right? Something Because it seems very technical and math-driven and really time-intensive too, right?
0: But this is no reason why they, they shouldn't... If you're a small business owner maybe just a one-man operation running an e-commerce shop, you can start testing a couple of things. You can even start testing a couple of things without proper A-B testing if you don't have enough traffic to run the A-B test. That's totally not scientific, but just we just have to bear in mind that there are some risks due to seasonality and other factors. When you run this, what we call a before and after or Another name is a sequential test.
1: Yeah, like just learning the whole process and the procedures, you need to get good data first off and kind of get it the right way and then analyzing that. It just sounds like a whole different science rather than having a guy that sells widgets and selling your widgets, right? So. Uh, and so I guess if, if we wrap things up now, I guess what's your top actionable tip for someone uh, that's looking to improve conversions on their website?
0: Okay, so the main thing I always look to optimize for a website would be your value proposition. The value proposition is the main reason why people buy from you. I like the definition from Mac Labs. So the definition goes something like, if I were your ideal prospect or customer, why should i buy from you rather than one of your competitors you'd be surprised people who are be who have been in business for some time have no idea what the value proposition is or it could be they have a great idea what the value proposition is i talk to the business owner and they'll be like you know this is why we're different and you go to the website and it's not there at all like it could be hidden in a corner in the bottom left hand corner somewhere where it's really hidden but the business owner knows what the value proposition is. So over and over again, the main thing I see is not having a value proposition, not knowing what it is and not expressing it clearly. Because the other stuff is easy. I mean, you can try to reduce the friction and anxiety, give free gifts or whatnot. But the thing is that's going to differentiate you from your competitor. And we're talking about long term. We're not talking about like just making a change and you know getting a sudden spike. We're talking about like long-term sustainable returns on your investment, whether it's time and money. Yeah, we're talking. We're talking
1: like we're talking like table selection here, really, in essence, too, right? Yeah, because it's like if I sell blue widgets, well, you know, I sell the blue widgets that are handmade, you know, with free shipping and guaranteed for life, something like that, right? Rather than no,
0: oh, I just I just sell blue widgets. <laughs> so this is the core thing I've seen. Uh, across most of the websites, at least potential clients that come to me, it's always the same thing. Like, There's no value proposition. It's not clear. Yeah.
1: So how do you know if it's clear or not or if it's working with your customers then? How do you advise them to test this?
0: Run A-B split test. That's the only way to be 100%
1: sure. I see. So maybe like your main website, your top of the fold, you would test different headlines on your USP and then kind of see which one... Works better, right?
0: But it's fairly obvious when it's non-existent. For example, I've, I'm sure you've seen all those websites that say we are the best, blah blah blah. Yeah, very generic. Very generic. Like yeah, you know, or, or or some like company gibberish using consultant speak on the website. Yeah, like when you see some websites that have a really cool about us page,
1: where it's like. Like the tone is very like someone talking to you or like the personality and the copy is really cool. You're like, oh, wow, this is actually pretty cool. And then it's not something like, oh, we believe in customer service and you know getting you the best you know things you need.
0: And- oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, one quick tip would be like the uh, so what test. Like I take a look at it and you read it and, for example, like we are the best in customer service and blah, blah, blah. That would be like, well, so what?
1: Exactly, because everyone should be expecting good customer service, right? It's like a base just to play the game. So, I mean, what else, right? So.
0: So you do know when it's bad, but whether, for example, someone likes customer service compared to quality products, compared to the price, this is something that has to be split tested?
1: Yeah, because what you think is your USP may not be what the customer wants in the end, too, and that's what you're testing for. And so, uh, you know, one thing, let's wrap up. Well, I guess this is your podcast. So people, where do, can people find
0: you? Okay. So, uh, well, everyone knows that this podcast is at conversionspodcast.com. Please leave me a iTunes review at cro.fm slash review. And my agency site is at conversionsguaranteed.com. And you can find quite a number of case studies there. And we're trying to increase that. And write a couple more. So, if you have any questions, just email me. Yeah, and uh, you guys can
1: find me. Uh, I'm like the guest host this one time, uh, Billmyonlinestore.com. Uh, I run a podcast about e commerce, talking to store owners and how they're building their businesses and kind of what's working and what isn't for them. So, and uh, thank you again, Francis, for letting me guest host your podcast. Thank you, Terry.
0: Thank you for listening to the Conversions Podcast. Please leave us a review and rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. We love hearing from you. Connect with us at our website, conversionspodcast.com, and let us know what you think.